Chapter 7 of The Golden Dream. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Dream by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 7 The Fate of the Roving Bess, Gambling Scenes, Mr. Sinton Makes a New Friend, Larry O'Neill Makes Money in Strange Ways, A Murder and a beggar's death. Ned becomes a poor man's heir. The remnant of the cargo of the roving Bess proved to be worth comparatively little, less even than had been anticipated. After a careful inspection, Mr. Thompson offered to purchase it in the slump for $1,000, about 200 pounds sterling. This was a heavy blow to poor Captain Bunting, who had invested his all, the savings of many years in the present unfortunate venture. However, his was not a nature to brood over misfortunes that could not be avoided, so he accepted the sum with the best grace he might, and busied himself during the next few days in assisting the merchant to remove the bales. During this period he did not converse much with anyone, but meditated seriously on the steps he ought to take. From all that he heard it seemed impossible to procure hands to man the ship at that time, so he began to entertain serious thoughts of taking his chance at the diggings after all. He was by nature averse to this, however, and had nearly made up his mind to try to beat up recruits for the ship, when an event occurred that settled the matter for him, rather unexpectedly. This event was the bursting out of a hurricane or brief but violent squall, which, before assistance could be procured, dragged the roving Bess from her moorings and stranded her upon the beach just below the town. Here was an end to seafaring prospects. The whole of his limited capital would not have paid for a tenth part of the labor necessary to refloat the ship. So he resolved to leave her on the beach and go to the diggings. Mr. Thompson advised him to sell the hole as it would fetch a good price for the sake of the timber, which at that time was much wanted in the town, but the captain had still a lurking hope that he might get his old ship afloat at some future period, and would not hear of it. What, said he, sell the roving Bess, which stands A1 at Lord's, to be broken up to build gold diggers' houses? I trow not. No, no, let her lie where she is in peace. On the day after the squall, as Ned and the captain were standing on the shore regarding their late floating and now grounded home, in sad silence, a long-legged, lantern-jawed man in dirty canvas trousers, long boots, a rough coat, and broad straw hat, with an enormous cigar in his mouth and both hands in his trousers' pockets, walked up and accosted them. It did not require a second glance to know that he was a Yankee. "'Guess that is pretty well fixed up, stranger,' he said, addressing the captain and pointing with his nose to the stranded vessel. "'It is,' answered the captain shortly. "'Fit for nothing but firewood, I calculate.' To this the captain made no reply. "'I say, stranger,' continued the Yankee, "'I wouldn't mind to give ye one thousand dollars for her. Slick off.' "'I don't wish to sell her,' replied the captain.' Say fifteen hundred, replied the man. I tell you, I won't sell her. No? Now that is curious. Will he loan her, then? Here Ned whispered a few words to the captain, who nodded his head, and turning to the Yankee, said, How much will you give? Well, I reckon she's too far out to drive a screaming trade, but I don't mind saying one hundred dollars a month. 
After some consultation with Ned and a little more talk with the Yankee, Captain Bunting agreed to this proposal, only stipulating that the bargain should hold good for a year, that the hole should not be cut or damaged in any way, and that the rent should be paid in advance into the hands of Mr. Thompson, as he himself was about to proceed to the gold fields. Having sealed and settled this piece of business at a neighboring tavern, where the Yankee, Major Whitlaw, ordered a brandy smash for himself and two gin slings for his companions, which they civilly declined to his intense amazement, the contracting parties separated. "'That's rather a sudden transfer of our good ship,' said Ned, laughing, as they walked toward the plaza, or principal square of the town, where some of the chief hotels and gambling-houses were situated. "'I feel half sorry for having done it,' replied the captain. "'However, it can't be helped now, so I'll away to our friend Thompson's office and tell him about it. "'Then I shall wander about here until you return.' it will be dinner-time at the hotels two hours hence suppose we meet at the parker house and talk over our future plans while we discuss a chop to this the captain agreed and then hurried off to his friend's office while ned entered the hotel a large portion of this building was rented by gamblers who paid the enormous sum of sixty thousand dollars a year for it and carried on their villainous and degrading occupation in it night and day the chief games played were monte and faro but no interest attached to the games as such. The winning or losing of money was that which lent fascination to the play. Ned had intended to stroll through the hotel and observe the various visitors who thronged the bar, but the crash of a brass band in the gambling saloons awakened his curiosity and induced him to enter. The scene that met his eyes was perhaps the strangest and the saddest he had ever looked upon, the large saloon was crowded with representatives of almost every civilized nation under the sun. English, Scotch, Irish, Yankees, French, Russians, Turks, Chinese, Mexicans, Indians, Malays, Jews, and Negroes, all were there in their national costumes and all were, more or less, under the fascinating influence of the reigning vice of California and especially of San Francisco. The jargon of excited voices can neither be conceived nor described. Crowds surrounded the monte tables on which glittering piles of gold and silver coin were passing from hand to hand according to varying fortune. The characteristics, and we may add the worst passions of the various nations, were ever and anon brought strongly out. The German and Spaniard laid down their money and lost or won without a symptom of emotion. The Turk stroked his beard as if with the view of keeping himself cool. The Russian looked stolid and indifferent. The Frenchman started, frowned, swore, and occasionally clutched his concealed pistol or bowie knife, while the Yankee stamped and swore. But indeed the men of all nations cursed and swore in that terrible place. Those who dwelt in the city staked gold and silver coin, while the men just returned from the mines staked gold dust and nuggets. These last were conspicuous from their rough clothing, rugged, bronzed, and weather-worn countenances. Many of them played most recklessly. Several successful diggers staked immense sums and either doubled or lost, in two or three throws, the hard earnings of many months of toil, and left the rooms penniless. At one end of the saloon there was a counter with a plentiful supply of stimulants to feed the excitement of the wretched gamblers, and the waiter here was kept in constant employment. Ned had never been within the unhallowed precincts of a gambling-house before, and it was with a feeling of almost superstitious dread that he approached the table and looked on. A tall, burly, bearded miner stepped forward at the moment and placed a huge purse of gold-dust on the table. 
"'Now, then,' he cried with a reckless air, "'here goes, neck or nothing.' "'Nothing,' he muttered with a fearful oath "'as the President raked the purse into his coffers. "'The man rose and strode sullenly from the room, "'his fingers twitching nervously about the hilt of his bowie knife, "'an action which the President observed, "'but he did not, being prepared with a concealed revolver "'for whatever might occur. "'Immediately another victim stepped forward, "'staked five hundred dollars, and won.' He staked again a thousand dollars, and won. Then he rose, apparently resolved to tempt fickle fortune no more, and left the saloon. As he retired, his place was filled by a young man who laid down the small sum of two dollars. Fortune favored this man for a long time, and his pile of dollars gradually increased until he became overconfident and staked fully half of his gains and lost. Ned's attention was drawn particularly to this player, whom he thought he had seen before. On looking more fixedly at him, he recognized the young porter who had carried up the box to the merchant's house. His next stake was again made recklessly. He laid down all he possessed and lost. Then he rose suddenly and, drawing a pistol from his breast, rushed towards the door. None of the players who crowded the saloon paid him more than momentary attention. It mattered not to them whether he meditated suicide or murder. They made way for him to pass, and then, closing in, were deep again in the all-absorbing game. But our hero was not thus callous. A strong feeling of sympathy filled his breast, prompting him to spring through the doorway and catch the youth by the shoulder just as he gained the street. He turned round instantly and presented the revolver at Ned's breast, but the latter caught his right arm in his powerful grasp and held it in the air. "'Be calm, my poor fellow,' he said. "'I mean you no harm. I only wish to have a word of conversation with you. You are an Englishman, I perceive.' The young man's head fell on his breast, and he groaned aloud. "'Come, come,' said Ned, releasing his arm. "'Don't give way like that.' "'I'm lost,' said the youth bitterly. I have struggled against this passion for gaming, but it has overcome me again and again. It is vain to fight against it any longer. Not a bit of it, man, said Ned in a cheering tone, as he drew the arm of the young man within his own and led him slowly along the street. You are excited just now by your disappointments. Let us walk together a while, for I have something to say to you. I am quite a stranger here, and it's a comfort to have a countryman to talk with. The kind words and earnest, hearty manner of our hero had the effect of soothing the agitated feelings of his new friend, and of winning his confidence. In the course of half an hour, he drew from him a brief account of his past history. His name, he said, was Collins. He was the son of a clergyman, and had received a good education. Five years before the period of which we now write, he had left his home in England and gone to sea, being at that time sixteen years of age. For three years he served before the mast in a South Sea whale-ship, and then returned home to find his father and mother dead. Having no near relations alive and not a sixpence in the world, he turned once more towards the sea, with a heavy heart and an empty pocket, obtained a situation as second mate in a trading vessel which was about to proceed to the Sandwich Islands. Encountering a heavy gale on the western coast of South America, his vessel was so much disabled as to be compelled to put into the harbor of San Francisco for repairs. Here the first violent attack of the gold fever had set in. The rush of immigrants was so great that goods of all kinds were selling at fabulous prices, and the few bales that happened to be on board the ship were disposed of for twenty times their value. 
The captain was in ecstasies, and purposed sailing immediately to the nearest civilized port for a cargo of miscellaneous goods. But the same fate befell him which afterwards befell Captain Bunting and many hundreds of others. The crew deserted to the mines. Thereupon the captain and young Collins also betook themselves to the gold fields, leaving the ship to swing idly at her anchor. Like most of the first arrivals at the mines, Collins was very successful and would soon, in diggers' parlance, have made his pile, i.e. his fortune, had not scurvy attacked and almost killed him, compelling him to return to San Francisco in search of fresh vegetables and medicine, neither of which at that time could be obtained at the mines for love or money. He recovered slowly, but living in San Francisco was so expensive that ere his health was sufficiently recruited to enable him to return to the gold fields, his funds were well nigh exhausted. In order to recruit them, he went, in an evil hour, to the gaming saloons, and soon became an inveterate gambler. In the providence of God, he had been led some years before to become an abstainer from all intoxicating drinks, and remaining firm to his pledge throughout the course of his downward career, was thus saved from the rapid destruction which too frequently overtook those who to the exciting influences of gambling added the maddening stimulus of alcohol. But the constant mental fever under which he labored was beginning to undermine a naturally robust constitution, and to unstring the nerves of a well-made powerful frame. Sometimes, when fortune favored him, he became suddenly possessor of a large sum of money, which he squandered in reckless gaiety. Often, however, following the dictates of an amiable, sympathetic disposition, he gave the most of it away to companions and acquaintances in distress. At other times he had not wherewith to pay for his dinner, in which case he took the first job that offered in order to procure a few dollars. Being strong and active, he frequently went down to the quays and offered his services as a porter to any of the gold hunters who were arriving in shoals from all parts of the world. It was thus, as we have seen, that he first met with Ned Sinton and his friends. All this, and a great deal more, did Ned worm out of his companion in the course of half an hour's stroll in the plaza. Now, said he, when Collins had finished, I'm going to make a proposal to you. I feel very much interested in all that you have told me. To be candid with you, I like your looks, and I like your voice. In fact, I like yourself, and—but what's your Christian name? Tom, replied the other. Very well, then I'll call you Tom in future, and you'll call me Ned. Now, Tom, you must come with me and Captain Bunting to the goldfields and try your fortune over again. Nay, don't shake your head. I know what you would say. You have no money to equip yourself, and you won't be indebted to strangers, and all that sort of stuff. But that won't do, my boy. I'm not a stranger. Don't I know all your history from first to last? Tom Collins sighed. Well, perhaps I don't know it all, but I know the most of it. And besides, I feel as if I had known you all my life. Ned interrupted the other in an earnest tone of voice. I feel your kindness very much. No one has spoken to me as you have done since I came to the diggings. But I cannot agree to your proposal today. Meet me at the Parker House tomorrow at this time, and I shall give you a final answer. But why not give it now? Because, because I want to, to get paid for a job I expect to get. Tom, said Ned, stopping and laying his hand on the shoulder of his companion, while he looked earnestly into his face, let us begin our friendship with mutual candor. Do you not intend to make a few dollars and then try to increase them by another throw at the gaming table? The youth's brow flushed slightly as he answered, "'You're right. I had half an intention of trying my fortune for the last time.